0: Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It has been a joy all day to be gathered together with this assembly of God's people to worship in spirit and in truth. I'm honored and grateful and excited for the privilege of having participated in the Frequency Conference this weekend by your pastor's invitation and to be asked to hang around, to uh, pitch hit for him this morning and to give him a break after a long weekend. I'm glad and honored to do so and it's been a rich time all week and I'm excited one more time to open God's word with you. Would you stand with me and get your Bible I want to uh, pray and then I want to read from the book of Hebrews. And after we've prayed and read, you may be seated. Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering publicly and corporately to worship you in spirit and in truth from the place where the sun rises to the place where the sun goes down. Your name is worthy to be praised. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. And in his name we ask that you would be our teacher now. Give us understanding and we will obey your word and keep it with our whole heart. I pray, Father, that You will grant me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word faithfully and clearly, and cause your children to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And by your amazing grace, draw to yourself this hour those who should be saved, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. 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 Hebrews chapter four. So the day is uh, toward its end, so I can make a confession. Uh, In my preparation for being here this weekend, I planned one, message for the conference and one message for you today. And uh, the Lord led me to preach the conference, the, at the conference, the message I intended to preach today. <laughs> so he's kind of just been leading me throughout uh, the day on passages that I've been meditating on that have been rich encouragement to me. And I hope they'll, this will be an encouragement to you from Hebrews 4 this hour. I wanted Point your attention. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest yeah. who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you for your patience. The Lord Jesus Christ occupies a threefold ministry office, prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, there, there was a separation of powers, if you will, so that a king could not serve as priest and needed a prophet in order to hear from God. But the Lord Jesus Christ occupies all three offices simultaneously. Yeah jesus the prophet reveals the mind of god jesus the priest provides access to god jesus the king exercises the rule of god we really don't need any other prophets to reveal god's mind we don't need any other priest to provide access to the father and we don't need any king on earth to advance heaven's agenda jesus christ is the all-sufficient prophet priest and king In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, the writer, the anonymous writer of this letter presents for us in clear terms the priestly ministry of Christ. The book of Hebrews was written to at-risk Jewish Christians because of severe persecution, religious persecution, they were tempted to forsake their profession of faith in Christ and return to the practice of Judaism. The anonymous author of the letter writes to exhort them to continue in the faith. And he gives these troubled Christians simply one reason why they should stick with Jesus, and it is this, what they have in Jesus is better. Than what they had before or without him. The opening verses of chapter one declares that Jesus is better than the prophets. Then, in chapter one, going into chapter two, we see that He is not only better than the prophets; Jesus is better than angels. And then, in chapter three, the writer will declare that Jesus is better than Moses, the lawgiver. And now, here in our text, Jesus says the writer is also better than Aaron and the high priest of Israel. Here in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, he begins his argument about the superiority of Jesus above the high priest of Israel. But this is more than just a doctrinal explanation of the priestly ministry of Christ. In this passage, the writer points us to Christ to launch into two big exhortations for the believer. The bottom of verse 14 is the first exhortation, let us hold fast our confession. The second exhortation is at the beginning of verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Here this passage marries doctrinal explanation and practical exhortation together. This passage teaches us that Jesus Christ is our great high priest who fully administers everything faith requires in order to live for God. Here in these three verses, there are three reasons why you should stick with Jesus yes. no matter what. Exactly. Consider, first of all, the superiority of Christ. Yeah. Verses 14 and 15 both declare Jesus Christ as high priest. But verse 14 is more emphatic, where here he is called a great high priest. Yeah. This is a bold Powerful, clear statement of the superiority of Christ as the writer says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What does this verse teach us about the superiority of Christ? Well, lean into the verse with us. Consider, first of all, where is our high priest? Verse 14 says, he has passed through the heavens. The high priest of Israel had the privilege of going into the very presence of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people by way of sacrifice. He passed the outer courts of the temple and go into the most holy place to offer sacrifice on the behalf of the people and their sins. No one else had this privilege, just the high priest. And he was only privileged to go into the most holy place once a year on the day of atonement. He would pass through the veil into the most holy place to make atonement for the sins of the people. It was a privilege that no one else in Israel could enjoy. And yet the text here says that our high priest is even greater because he has passed through the veil not merely of a human physical temple, he has passed through the veil of a heavenly temple. Yes. In chapter 1, the writer declares that after Christ had made propitiation for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. When the human priest of Israel made sacrifice for sin, they would have to rush out of God's presence as quickly as possible, lest they die in the presence of a holy God. But when our great high priest made atonement for sin, after his work was done, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But if that alone does not declare the superiority of our great high priest, consider another question. Not just where is our high priest, but who is our high priest? Yeah. So that there will be no mistake about who the writer is talking about, he declares it clearly. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Watch this. Identification. Jesus, the son of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus points to the humanity of Jesus. He lived and died as a human being, but yet the writer wants to rush to make the point that this Jesus is more than Adam's son, Abraham's seed, or Mary's baby. This is the son of the living God. Jesus is the blending of deity and humanity. Jesus is the meeting place of heaven and earth. Jesus is the intersection between time and eternity. He is the Son of the living God. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13, we read of the transfiguration of Jesus, where his divine glory began to shine through his human flesh. And three of his disciples, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, are with him there as he meets with Elijah representing the prophets, and Moses representing the law there on that mountain. And so overwhelmed is Peter that he just has to say something. And so he says, Lord, it's just good to be here. (laughs) Well, that's in the Bible. I didn't make that up. He said, it's good to be here. And then he, he wants to freeze the moment in time. And he says, let's build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. But a voice speaks from heaven and declares of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him and the voice so frightened the disciples that they fell on their faces until Jesus approaches and says, do not fear. And when they lift up their eyes, Matthew says, they see no one but Jesus only. I love that language because that's the way it's supposed to be. There's nobody else on Jesus' level. No one like Jesus, no one born like Jesus, no one lived like Jesus, no one spoke like Jesus, no one worked like Jesus, no one died like Jesus, no one got up like Jesus and ain't nobody coming back like Jesus, he is Jesus the son of the living God. One more question about verse 14. So what? what? What difference does this make? In too many instances, friends, we, we separate doctrine from duty, truth from life, theology from practice of obedience. But the reality is when it comes to, to truth and life, the, the two are inseparable lovers. They won't show up without the other. You, you, don't, you don't know the truth if it hasn't shaped the way you live. And in order to live the truth, you must first know the truth. James 1 verse 22 bottom lines it this way. Be doers of the word. And not hearers only deceiving yourselves. You, you are deceiving yourselves he says, if you think you know God because you have heard the word, if you are not living out that word. Yeah. Yeah. And so the writer here marries for us doctrinal truth and practical obedience. As he declares these truths about Christ and then anchors them down with this exhortation, let us hold fast our confession." This whole fast our confession, this exhortation acknowledges the temptation to let go of one's confession. This was the very real experience of the troubled Christians to whom the writer pins this letter. They were tempted to forsake their profession of faith, and he declares that Inasmuch as Christ is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is the very son of the living God, we must hold fast our profession, not our salvation. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ, plus or minus nothing. And our eternal security is rooted on those same realities. The perseverance of the saints does not save us and get us to heaven. It is evidence of one's genuine profession of faith. In a real sense of faith, you know, that fizzles before the finish have a fatal flaw from the first. But, But when faith is real, it doesn't do the moonwalk on Jesus when things get rough in life. He, he says in light of the fact that Jesus is our great high priest, the son of the living God who has passed through the heavens. Whatever we face in this world, and these are critical times that we live in. But listen to the text. Hold fast your profession of faith in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. The writer says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. Verse 14 then of our text, there is the superiority of our great high priest, but then in verse 15, there is the sympathy of our great high priest. The sympathy of our great high priest. Verse 14 is a call to steadfastness based upon the exalted position of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now there is still a dilemma. How can someone so high and holy relate to me and my sins and struggles and sufferings? Verse 15 answers, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This 15th verse is a restatement of what has already been affirmed in chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins the people. Here in negative language, the writer makes the same point. Listen to him. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He declares that we should stick with Jesus because Jesus cares and Jesus knows he first declares that Jesus cares. We, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our Says This weakness Says refers to the reality of our fallen condition as human beings. All of us are weak. Yes. And clearly here, the writer is affirming that the fact that we have trusted in Christ does not Trump, this reality of our weaknesses, no matter how long you have known the Lord, no matter how long you've walked with him, how passionately you pray, how diligently you study the word. All of us have, have weaknesses. We, We are vulnerable to temptation that we cannot handle on our own. We are weak people who cannot handle life on our own. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Jesus is not aloof or indifferent or uncaring. He he cares for us in our weaknesses. A little boy would often console himself in the absence of his father who was away on military duty by just sitting and staring at a portrait of his father in a frame on the wall, but one day as his mother was in the kitchen, she overheard the son weeping, and she rushed out to see what the matter was, and he simply said, I want, I want dad to come out of the frame. Mm. And there's sometimes we feel that way about God the Father. As you read about his love and his power and his goodness in Scripture, sometimes it just seems so disconnected. From the reality of the things that we are facing in our lives. But the writer here is reminding us that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has stepped out of the frame. He has put on human flesh. He has become one of us. He has suffered in our, and he has sweated in our heat and shivered in our cold. So that there is no circumstance in life where he does not know and he does not care. He cares. He cares. But not only does he care, he he knows. How is he able to sympathize with us in our weakness? He says because Christ has been through what you're going through. He cares because he knows. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect is tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus. Jesus was tempted. No, he had no sinful desires, but he did face evil solicitations. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Satan himself tempts Jesus in the wilderness to take a shortcut to glory. Jesus was tempted. In fact, the text says he was tempted in every respect he was tempted at all points no he has not faced every possible temptation he has faced every kind of temptation the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life he has been tempted in every way we will be tempted jesus experienced temptation listen to this next part But the Jesus who experienced temptation is the Jesus who overcame temptation. He overcame temptation. Listen to me. Temptation attacked Jesus, but temptation never defeated Jesus. He is tempted in every respect as we are. Watch the qualifier. This is all important. These three words in the verse, yet without sin. There was nothing in him to find the temptation of sin attractive. He knew no sin. He had no sin nature. He was without sin. That, that might be a simple assumed truth, but this is a glorious truth. The writer gives here to anchor our faith in. Because if Jesus committed a sin, any sin, pick a sin, just one sin, he would not be qualified to be our savior. You can't be a sinner and a savior at the same time. This is the dilemma we were in. We were guilty sinners who could not make ourselves right with God. But Jesus is qualified to be our great high priest because he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. In too many instances, it is suggested that the best help for the person who is struggling is to go to someone who has fallen in that struggle and got up again, who can encourage you. But the writer here in verse 15 says, Now, the best help is to go to the one who never failed. Help me here, somebody. He he took sin's worst. He took Satan's worst and was victorious. And he is our strength when we are weak. And so verse 14 says you should stick with Jesus because of the Superiority of our great high priest. Verse 15 says you should stick with Jesus because of the sympathy of our great high priest. Then verse 16 says you should stick with Jesus because of the sufficiency of our great high priest. He is everything you need. I mentioned there are two exhortations in this passage. The first at the bottom of verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession The second is at the beginning of verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Verse 14 says, let us hold fast to our confession. It means don't give up, don't go back, don't turn around. But now in verse 16, the writer is saying, not only must you not go back, but you can't stay where you are either. The exhortation here is to draw near. We We should constantly be drawing near to God through faith in the blood and righteousness of Christ that opens for us a new and living way to God. The 16th verse is a divine command that reads as a gracious invitation. In fact, there may be no more Beautiful, wonderful, glorious call to prayer in any place in the scripture than this 16th verse. It is because of this verse that the church sings, Come ye disconsolate, wherever ye languish, come to the mercy seat, fervently kneel. Here bring your wounded heart, here tell your anguish, for earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot heal. Listen to the writer say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Consider the sufficiency of Christ as seen first here in the privilege of prayer. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The throne of grace is a euphemism for God Himself and for the presence of God. But this is unique terminology. God's throne here is marked by grace. As you read the Old Testament, the throne of God is marked by holiness and justice and sovereignty and judgment. But because of the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the throne of judgment is for us a throne of grace. Uh, Remember in Isaiah 6? When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up sitting on his throne, yes, he cried out, woe is me. That's the proper response of a guilty sinner and the presence of a holy God. You, you are doomed, yes. but, but because Jesus paid it all at the cross, yes. that holy throne of judgment is for us a throne which is a fountain of grace. And the text says we should draw near. Let us draw near. This may seem little, but that little word us is big in verse 16. Let us draw near. What us? Everyone who has made verse 14 a confession, reminding us, of the privilege that is ours in Jesus Christ. You, you don't need a priest in a booth or a patron saint or a guardian angel to get you to God because Christ has paved the way, let us come. Yes. And the grammar of the text indicates let us continually come, let us repeatedly come, let us habitually come. I want you to think about that. Because of the finished work of Christ, God's holy throne room is always open to pour out grace. I had to grow up overnight as a boy preacher. At the age of 16, I left home from L.A. to Detroit to preach a week meeting, week-long meeting. As I flew home, God called my father from his labor to his heavenly reward. And I had to grow up overnight. My dad passed suddenly when I was 16 years old, and I remember just in the aftermath of that, in the uh, weeks following, I I, um, got my first banking account. And I remember one day a friend of mine, Barry, came by the house to pick me up to hang out one Saturday. It was just kind of him to get me out of the house as I was grieving. And I said, man, let me stop by the bank to get some money. Pulled up in the bank, I walked up to the bank, I walked back to the car, and I said, hey man, (laughs) uh, we can go to lunch, but you're gonna have to pay today because I don't have any money, the bank is closed. Barry said, "Uh, Junior, you just got that account. I said, yeah. He said, did they give you an ATM card? I said, yeah, they, they gave me one. He said, do you have it? I said. Yeah, I said my wallet. He said, D- did you get a PIN number? I said, yeah, I, they told me to put a code in. Do you know the PIN <laughs> number? I said, yeah, they gave me my own secret code to put in there, and, and, and we got out of the car and walked back to the closed bank, oh, walked past oh. the locked doors, and he showed me how to use that ATM changed my life forever, y'all. It changed my life forever. Because at that point, I was no longer on the bank's time. It it didn't matter what I needed or when it was or where I was. I had access to what I needed. And this is the privilege that is ours in Jesus Christ. God has swung open the, the throne room of glory. And he says, it doesn't matter when it is or what you need, keep drawing near to the throne of grace. In fact, he says, draw near with confidence. I grew up with this passage. I've learned this verse as a boy from an older translation that said, come boldly before the throne of grace. The, 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 the language here in the original refers to freedom of speech. You can come to the throne of grace with freedom of speech. Think about that. Because of Christ, when you pray, you don't have to pray like a desperate beggar going to a wealthy stranger asking for a big favor. Because of Christ, when you pray, you don't have to pray like a guilty criminal standing before a stern judge hoping for a lenient sentence. Because of Christ, you don't have to pray like a servant without rank before a master without mercy making a request without assurance. Because of Christ, you can pray as a confident child coming to a loving father. You, you don't have to dress up your prayers and make them pretty to say what you think God wants to hear. You can tell them just like it is, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The sufficiency of Christ is seen in the privilege of prayer, but the sufficiency of Christ is also seen in the power of prayer. Verse 16 begins with a com- Man, it ends with a promise. It begins with an exhortation. It ends with an assurance. It begins by telling you what to do. It ends by telling us what God will do if you do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And Here in verse 16, this simple verse gives us the two fundamental reasons why you ought to pray. First reason why you should pray. Because the word of God commands it. The second reason why you should pray. Hold on to your seat. Because it works. God hears. And answers prayer. Verse 16. Says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That. We may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer here says, if you go to the throne of grace, exercising the privilege of the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, you you, you may not get everything you want, but you you won't leave empty-handed. You will get guaranteed what you need the most first thing you need is sparing mercy. God will give mercy to cover your past sins. You will receive mercy. The word here, mercy, goes back to our weaknesses in verse 15. It reminds us that we are not like Christ. We've been tempted and we have sinned a lot. Mercy is when God holds back. The punishment that you rightly deserve. Mercy, mercy is, is ironic because, because to need mercy is to not deserve it. Mercy is what you ask for when you cannot ask for anything else. You just cry out, Lord, have mercy. The text says it doesn't matter however who you are, or what you've done, if you run to the cross and exercise the privilege of the great high priest God, his throne of grace will give you mercy. I thought I'd have a witness there. I'm yeah. talking about mercy, y'all. <laughs> I, I brought my own witness just in case. Uh-huh. David was guilty of lust, uh-huh. adultery, consi- c- conspiracy, murder, and hypocrisy. Yeah. But when the Lord cornered him through the prophet Nathan, he cries out in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness and according to your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. And God answered David's prayer, and I'm standing to say, he'll do the same for you. If you come to the throne of grace on the basis of the finished work of our great high priest, and not only will he give sparing mercy, mercy to cover past sin, But it'll also give you grace to help you with future trials. Uh This is my reading of the text. I think mercy refers to the forgiveness of sin. I think grace here is broader than that. And it's about more than forgiveness of sin. It's about favor for life. I think it is what the text labels it here. It's grace to help. Grace to help you do what? You fill in the blank. Grace to help you resist temptation, to live obediently, and to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Remember in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul asked God to remove his painful thorn in the flesh, the Lord refused but promised, my grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. And my strength is perfected in your weakness. One more thing and I'm finished. When does God give this sparing mercy and sustaining grace? And the last phrase says, in time of need. It's well-timed help. It's, it's help right in the nick of time. You may not feel strong, but if you will obey Christ, strength will meet you at the place of obedience, right in the nick of time. God's timing is perfect. He never late, tardy, nor absent. He lives in one eternal now, too early, too late, or not in God's vocabulary. He's always right on time. He showed up Noah years before the rain and the flood, but it was the right time. He showed up for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego while they were in the fiery furnace, but it was still the right time. He didn't show up for Mary and Martha until after Lazarus had been dead for four days, but it was still the right time. In my daddy's church when I was a boy, Deacon Nate Lewis used to sing, you can't hurry God. You just got to wait. You got to trust him and give him time no matter how long it takes. He's a God, you can't hurry, but he'll be there, don't worry. He may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. time. If you come to the throne of grace by the privilege that is ours of the great high priest, you, you might not get everything you want. And I've been on the road with Christ long enough to at this point be able to thank God for closed doors as well as open doors. Yes, sir. Now that's a whole nother sermon. Yes, sir. Even if you don't get everything you want, there are some things guaranteed God will give. He'll give mercy and grace to help in the time of need. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for his truth, wisdom, and authority. Thank you for the message of the scriptures that point us to the total sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ for every need of our lives, especially the deep needs of our soul. Thank you that as guilty sinners you have provided a great high priest who not only makes offering for our sins, but is that very atonement who once and for all has made sacrifice for sins by his death at the cross and has justified us by his resurrection from the dead. And as we live in critical and confusing and chaotic times, would you help us simply to just stick with Jesus, no matter what, holding fast to our profession of faith and when when we are weak, may we just draw near to you by the privilege of our great high priest. I pray for those under the sound of my voice who have not taken that first step of faith to Christ. Draw them to yourself by your amazing grace. And may your people draw closer to you today. In light of the wonderful truth of your word, we pray. Amen.